you know, with a hard news subject like this, where the world really needs to know right now what is happening in Ukraine, there's still room for us to be creative. There's room for us to tell compassionate, compelling human stories. But we definitely have to be creative about how we meet these really intensive demands each day. Hey, Sky. Hey, Jenny. It's been a while. It has been a while, but I think for a good reason. Mm-hmm. Because we've got a lot of new and exciting changes on the horizon for the podcast. But in the meantime, with everything happening in Ukraine, we wanted to hear from some of our friends and colleagues who are on the ground there to hear more about what it's like to be a journalist there right now and and what they're dealing with. You know, in thinking about who we could talk to, there's so many amazing people who are there right now. Um, Ben Solomon, Zoyan Murphy, Nick Childers, tons. But John Gerberg was one person who stuck out as a great uh, source to who you could have a conversation with, right? Yeah, yeah. So just for background, uh, John has been a video journalist at The Washington Post for five years. Um, before that, he was a foreign affairs producer at PBS NewsHour. He's also worked with The New York Times, uh, Time, AP. He's traveled all around the world covering conflicts. Um, so he has had a lot of experience in this area and he gave some really great insight into what it's like to be a video journalist on the ground um, during war and all of the challenges that come along with that. So we talked about, you know, how you make split second decisions of what to cover and what not to cover and, and how you get into a workflow when you're always on the go and how you even stay focused on what you're doing when there's so much so much going on around you. Yeah, you know, the the humanity and uh, sensitivity and empathy that he brings to his work is um, really inspiring. So I, I'm really excited to hear this. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are too. And, you know, before we begin, it's worth um, acknowledging that that some of our friends and colleagues have have died in the line of fire. Brent Renaud, Max Levin, um, amazing journalists and and others whose heart and soul is just devoted to spreading the truth, you know, and um, it speaks to the urgency of this work and the necessity of this work. And, you know, I think we're all excited to hear this, so. Yeah, I think it's a much needed conversation. Yeah. So with that, this is John Gerberg and you're listening to Rough Cut. Here we go. Thank you, John, for taking the time out of what I can assume is an insane day to be on the podcast. Sure. Happy to be here. Can you just start off by talking about like your background and how you ended up being a video journalist for The Washington Post? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, I'm not sure how far you want, how far back you want me to go. I had a lot of friends who were really good skateboarders and I was not one of them. Um, but I could hold a camera and uh, make videos of them skating. And I, I don't know, it's, it's just something I, I kind of learned quickly was, you know, creative and a, a way to tell stories and something that kind of really struck up a bunch of my different passions. And it was like this puzzle that I would loved to figure out every time. Um, I guess I, I early on, I actually, I wanted, I knew I wanted to get into filmmaking, but I actually kind of 
looked into, you know, I took a couple film classes in college and I found some of the fiction production, which still is, you know, something I'm passionate about on my own time. But there wasn't just enough of like a, you know, it was a lot of sitting around in classes, like people saying, oh, I don't like this lighting. I don't like this mise-en-scene. And I was kind of like, I grew up like building houses and I was used to like getting stuff done. And it, you know, the arts of, of fiction filmmaking just kind of felt very abstract. And uh, I actually did an internship the summer before my senior year, um, a paid internship with the uh, news outlet Democracy Now, um, which is based in New York. And I was in the archives, but they let me go out and film a couple of protests and stuff. And I immediately was like, oh, this is it. You know, you can both be, you know, a creative audiovisual storyteller, but still have, you know, the real kind of tangible objective of news to like kind of go out and say, you know, there's a story that needs to be told that we're going to go out and we're going to get it and we're going to get it right. And we're going to, you know, deliver it and we're going to move on. Um, and that just felt, you know, more, you know, tangible to me. Um, so I kind of never looked back. From skateboard videos to shooting the war in Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's quite a journey. Can you describe what it's like to be a journalist on the ground in Ukraine right now? I mean, it's a lot of things. Um, I think for for any human being to be in a place that is, you know, so torn apart by by war, uh, by violence, is is a hard thing on an individual level, especially at a place like like Kiev or all you know across Ukraine. There, there's such a rich culture, both. And the people, the pride, the you know, the stand-up nature that everybody has in the in this country is it just speaks volumes. Even even when you meet people who are so clearly worn down by this really really dragging war, um, it's it's difficult on a personal level. And then as a journalist, obviously. I never know actually if if being a journalist actually helps me to connect more to the stories because I'm asking more questions, I'm more inquisitive, I'm I have an excuse to dig deeper into the experiences of others around me than I would have if I was just a normal citizen. Um at the same time, I'm also kind of protected by the layer of distance I have because I'm kind of objectifying my subject because I'm there as a journalist, right? I'm not there as a participant. So that actually affords me, I think, some psychological and emotional protection there, too. It's just a constant, I, you know, and I've experienced this in other um, assignments, too, but it's this constant waxing and waning of both like realization and then a kind of objective, I don't want to say numbness to it, but you have to assimilate to the stories as you're as you're telling them, you know, and every day you're going through checkpoints every day you're waking up to blasts in the city and immediately checking to see how many civilian di civilians died and where was the most damage today um, and every person you meet is displaced from their home and has not talked to loved ones in weeks over a month at this point sometimes or has has escaped from their own home under the most brutal circumstances you can imagine seeing you know their neighbors lying dead in the streets under active shelling just to try to escape. I mean, it's I can't even begin to describe the horrors that people felt. And it's not just 
in one pocket here or one pocket there. It's it's across this country, at least large swaths of the country. Um, so there's it's beyond the human, you know, it, it's beyond our capability to to grasp at this point. But at the same time, you're both doing your best to document little pieces of it. And then you're kind of having these realizations of like, oh, wow. Sometimes you even, you, you can do a whole interview with somebody and you're so kind of focused on listening to the details and thinking about kind of how you can build, how that fits into the rest of your story and how it fits with, you know, what what you're going to ask them next and engaging. And I'm not saying you're not listening to them. I, I think that's that's a deep process of listening, but sometimes it's not even until you come back and you're, you're looking at your footage or or you're just laying there in bed and thinking back on the conversation you had that with that person and it just strikes you in this even deeper place um and it's that constant waxing and waning multiple times throughout the day um i've been here for about five weeks now in in ukraine and um yeah it's in some ways I don't want to say you get used to it, but you, you learn to kind of, you learn the rhythm of that very extreme tide. Um, but it's, it's also, it's exhausting and it's taxing and it's, it's a lot. Yeah. We had another, we had someone else on the podcast at one point um, talking about being a war journalist, um, but also like specifically shooting video in conflict zones and how... Yep separating yourself emotionally is kind of like necessary to actually be able to get a good shot and like work the technical part of the job like focus on actually getting the job done um, because you can so easily get wrapped up in what's going on around you and how it affects people oh a hundred percent that's a really hard dynamic i mean i i don't know how i've kind of figured that out because sometimes you are just shooting an interview and you can kind of frame your shot and like kind of set it and forget it and just worry about, you know, engaging with your interview subject. Obviously, you know, if you're working for a bigger production, um, you know, you have somebody who's just, you know, a camera up and somebody who's just worried about conducting the interview and that's great. But I'm, I'm almost always kind of tasked to some degree with doing all of that at once. I try to like, you know, I think your camera really becomes an extension of your body, not to sound really corny with that, but, you know, it it becomes like this extra tool that you are engaging the, you know, subject or subjects through. Um, and even just the way you kind of, you know, position yourself, like, you know, I'm all, I always try to sit like as close to my lens as possible. And it can, I think it can really open people up in that way. I do think when I'm shooting, you know, what we call, for lack of a better term, B-roll, like when I'm just getting the kind of technical imagery, that's when I really like will kind of snap into a different zone. And I almost like don't know what I'm doing. I'm just like, got to get my wide. I got to get my tights. Oh, I see, you know, and I'm anticipating a certain action. So I'm positioning myself down the road or up on a ledge or wherever I can be to do that kind of anticipatory type of filming. And like, I think anybody that's, you know, shot Verite, a documentary, and that way knows that, like, out of time, out of space experience that that can be. Um, but when you are engaging with human subjects, there's a total other psycho-emotional element to that, that you do have to stay really engaged. Um, and in a way, that just becomes another 
you know, another axis on that dimension of those things that you're trying to anticipate and juggle and listen. And um, it's a muscle that you you develop, I think. Yeah. How do you prepare for going into a war zone like this? Or like, can you even prepare? Do you just have to kind of drop everything and go? Yeah, you mean like before before I even leave my apartment yeah. kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I've been having this conversation with a lot of people lately, like, you know, because I have a lot of colleagues who are rotating into the country, actually, and a lot of them are calling me from the place of, you know, kind of preparing and getting up and going. And I always tell them, you know, at least for me, the most kind of exhausting and just like nerve wracking part of an assignment is before I even, you know, get on the plane, because that's when, you know, what can go wrong is just infinite, right? And you're trying to make contingency plans and prepare for every possible worst case scenario. And you're trying to kind of map everything out. And your brain is just kind of bouncing from like one worst case scenario to the next to the next, right? And it's not, but then, you know, then you get on the plane and it's like, well, if you forgot anything at home, like it, that's gone, you know, and, and then you get through duty free and it's like, well, you can't buy anything there, you know, and then, you know, you get in the vehicle and you cross the border and then, you know, little by little, you kind of whittle down your options. And once you're really on the ground, it's very clarifying, you know, it's very, things come into focus and you realize you can only, you're one person with the gear you have, with the skills you have at the place you are in life, whether it's the first war you've ever covered or whether you've been doing it for 20, 30 years, you know, um, but you can only do the best with the rig in your hand and the, and the you know, the experience in, in yourself. And then your options become much more limited, but I think that's actually very liberating because then the question is what do, it's not what, how do I prepare for everything and how do I anticipate everything? It's how can I, what is the best story I can tell with the tools in my hand right now? That's kind of abstract, but you know, there's a lot. I could talk more about like the kind of technical things that I pack and that kind of thing if you want. But. I mean, maybe touch on that a little. Our our audiences um, like really heavily, you know, doc and journalists people, so I think they'd appreciate that. Sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, I I shoot with a Sony FS5 right now, and an A7S as a backup, and you know, I try to. I pack all the normal stuff, you know, camera and, you know, backup lens, tripod, monopod, um, lots of batteries of every possible sort, um, you know, power banks and chargers, because obviously, you know, the, big, the biggest challenge of all this is just keeping your batteries charged in all situations at all times. And, you know, situations like this require a lot of other logistics, too. First of all, you know, obviously you have you have your body armor and now it's COVID. So you bring COVID tests and masks and sanitizer and everything like that. Um, there, I also have, you know, like two way radios. Like what if we lose signal and we, you know, have to communicate between cars, sat phones and begins to communicate with, you know, with home base. Um, so it's, it's a lot of checklists. I'm really big into my lists. I, I always have running lists that I'm just constantly adding to and checking things off because I know nothing ever stays in my brain, especially when it's like that kind of 
frantic, like 24 hour pack and run kind of situation, which unfortunately a lot of these assignments tend to be. Um, so everything just goes right down in my pack list or checklist or to-do list that's on my phone. And hopefully I can knock everything out. Inevitably it keeps growing as twice as fast as I'm checking things off, but, um, that's just the process. Where do the stories that you're covering come from? Are they primarily coming from just like tips you're getting on the ground, you're following threads and then stories just kind of come about or are your colleagues at the post like sending you things to investigate? How does that work? Yeah, it, it's a combination of things. Honestly, I mean, I feel this is one of the things I feel most lucky about working at an amazing organization like the Washington Post um, is that I work with so many um, incredibly talented, intelligent and well-resourced colleagues who really just know stories in and out, who are always generating so many ideas and reporting and sharing these ideas in a very kind of collegial nature. And we really are our biggest resource for each other. Um, so obviously, you know, I do all the reading, all the background reading I possibly can. A lot of these stories at this point, you know, I'm at a point in my career where, like I said, I've worked in Ukraine three times. Um, I work a lot around the Middle East and Latin America, South Asia. Um, so I tend, a lot of the stories I cover, I tend to have some familiarity with already, if not, you know, real experience and time in that country or place. But I will still read everything I can, um, both, you know, immediate news reports, and I'll always try to bring at least one book um, written in the place that I am going to, hopefully by a local author, if, if I can. Um, and that's always good to kind of get you in, in the zone um, for on the plane and kind of start thinking a little more in depth about the kind of stories you want to tell. Um, and I also look at the other stuff that's out there and think about, you know, what I might want to do differently, what I might contribute um, to the body of work that's already been, you know, the body of reportage that's already been produced on on this topic or this situation. Um, and then, you know, I'm constantly having conversations with my editors. Um, I mean, rarely is it, you know, a to especially because in, in news, you know, we don't root a lot of these situations that Ukraine is a perfect example. I don't really have time to submit like a formal story pitch, but there's constant informal conversations happening about the news of the day, the last story we did, the next story we're going to do, what would be good after that? And, you know, I'll throw in there when I can, you know, I'll say to my boss, hey, I'd really like to do a story about this. Hey, you know, I met this person in the story today, but I would love to follow them further. Or they said this one thing about, you know, how their family was like separated into four different places into four different countries. Or, you know, I met this guy who's like stuck in the country, but it, you know, doesn't, you know, because he's a fighting age male, but he doesn't want to fight and he has nowhere to go. And he's stuck with, you know, stuck in the country while his whole family flees. And wouldn't it be good to kind of capture that angle of the story? Um, and those started as just very informal conversations. And then as we go and as the de reporting develops, um, you know, you've got to kind of, you know, journalism, like all media production um, is the art of the possible, you know, so you're always kind of throwing around these, you know, 
best case scenario ideas. And then it comes down to like the reporting you actually have and what's feasible, what's accessible, um, what you can actually, where you can actually get and who actually wants to talk to you and what materials you can have that could actually like deliver and carry that story. Um, and then how do you tell it to the best of your ability? So um, those are conversations I'm having just with my my editors on the video side of things. And then of course, I'm also working hand in hand with print reporters uh, and photographers, any journalist that's worked overseas or outside of their own community or culture knows the importance of, of a fixer or a local producer um, who speaks the language, who knows the community, um, who can understand the nuances of the community in a way that you just can't if you're not of that place. Um, and, you know, the converse, the relationship you build um, with that local producer and the conversations you have it is probably the single, not probably, is without a doubt this the single greatest asset you have as a reporter in a kind of foreign situation and kind of just listening to people's instincts you know sometimes you can just tell that you're in a different place you're talking to somebody and it might not even come through literally in the words that they're saying but you can tell that you know the person you're working with is it's really drawn to this other person and you you know you ask why and like oh, well, you know, I noticed that they had a strange accent or I noticed that they made reference to this store, but that shop has been closed for all these years. You know, it, it could be anything, but there are these little kind of details that can open up entire stories if you know where to look. Um, so being able to, being always open to the possibility of stumbling into those stories and being kind of, I think, humble enough to to ask those questions and look for things that you weren't already certain of um, can lead to kind of the best story ideas. Yeah. And I imagine you're, I mean, just because everything's so under pressure and fast paced, you're making these like snap judgments based on like what you think an interesting story would be, which is a lot of pressure. Yeah, it is. Um, that's one of the things that can be really difficult and maybe a little frustrating at times um, about circumstances like this is, you know, I would love to, you know, spend six months, a year or more with a single family, you know, seeing how this war has completely upended their life and every, you know, semblance of everything that they, you know, held certain and good in their life up to this point. And one day they had you know, a happy family and a future and a job and stability. And, you know, the future was something real and dependable and something they felt good about. And the entire fabric of that reality was just ripped apart overnight and will never be put back together. And those are really the most compelling human stories you can think of. And I, and I know, I have no doubt that those documentaries are being produced right now and I can't wait to see them working in journalism, you know, working in, you know, news journalism. Um, we have a quicker turnaround time and there are pros and cons to that. You know, I really see huge value in be being able to document these stories in real time and to, to people all over the world as events are unfolding. I think the opportunity for impact is enormous in a way that you don't have when you're, 
you know, watching a film in a in a festival, you know, four years from now. But um, obviously, we we don't get to kind of tell as penetrating as transformative stories um, as you might be able to in that more feature format. So I think the pace is is definitely exhausting. And there are all the time stories that I'm like, I wish I could tell this person's story in 90 minutes. You know, I wish I could spend all the time in the world with this person. I wish I could make this journey with them rather than just telling the story of how they departed on it, you know, stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, it can all, it can also be in its own way kind of liberating because you become aware of the limitations or the parameters, I guess is a better word that you're working within. Um, and then you see how much you can do within that space. And that space might be a 24 hour turnaround that this story has to get out. You know, sometimes we have a few more days, sometimes even weeks. Um, but you know, with a hard news subject like this, where the world really needs to know right now what is happening in Ukraine, there's still room for us to be creative. There's still a room for us to tell compassionate, compelling human stories, but we definitely have to be creative about how we meet these really intensive demands each day. How do you stay safe? That's a great question. That's the most important question. Um, not just for myself, obviously, but for everybody that I'm working with and even everyone I come in contact with, right? Because, you know, in any conflict zone, you know, you're a, every beating heart is a liability, not just to itself, but to, to you know, the decisions we make affect everyone around us. Um, and there are a number of kind of dimensions of, of security that we practice. I mean, the most basic just being kind of situational awareness and common sense and really trying to stay open and know as much about the situation you're walking into and um, keep an open mind and execute the best decisions to to protect yourself and everyone around you in real time. Um, preparation as far as, you know, I've done multiple hostile environment and first aid trainings. Oh. In addition to that, you know, I at the Washington Post, we have a pretty robust um, team of editors in DC um, and colleagues on the ground, um, and even uh, security people whose whose job it is to monitor situations and um, advise us on the best kind of the best practices, or at least the safest potential options for how to kind of. Um, assess our day-to-day -day decisions and our reporting plans and structure our reporting plans in a way that, again, there's no guarantee of safety when you're in a war zone, but you can always have backup plans and backup to your backup plans, and you can determine when the risk is too high um, to go for a story. We've, we always reiterate to each other over and over that no story, however good, is worth your life or anybody else's life. I was a freelancer for years, including in war zones before I was ever a staff journalist. And when I was a freelancer, you know, I became even more aware of how your greatest assets in these situations can be the people around you, you know, and especially as freelancers with like not huge budgets and not, you know, security contractors and all this stuff. You know, we were constantly pooling our resources, talking constantly about what we knew about the situation and where it was safe and where it wasn't. And and traveling together and watching each other's back and all those kind of things really help us keep each other safe. Um, and I, you know, 
I keep that same mentality. I, I, I always say that even, even though I'm, um, in a cushy staff job now, I'm still a freelancer at heart and I still, uh, definitely always practice that kind of mantra of just trying to work together to protect each other and watch each other's backs and do the best we can. I just want to say, I don't think anyone would call your job cushy <laughs> you <were laughs> yeah. on the ground in a war zone. I understand what you mean versus like being staff versus freelance and how that sure. gives some cushion, but, uh, that's the, yeah, that's a, that's a whole other conversation, I guess. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Well, sometimes, you know, when the job is too cushy, you got to find ways to uh, keep things keep things challenging, I guess. Totally. I'm sure there's no shortage of challenges in your situation. Yeah. And also, like, you know, I, I never want to be so comfortable in, like, a, in any job, in any position that I'm not kind of... I don't know. I think to tell good stories, especially in journalism or any kind of documentary, I think to tell good stories requires us being a bit uncomfortable, right? Getting outside of that comfort zone. And the danger I think is of being in a staff job is like, you know, even, even if you don't challenge yourself quite enough, like you still wake up tomorrow and you still have a job, you know, You're, there's not quite as much relying on it, but, and I, and I think that's an important thing, right? I don't want to wake up every morning not knowing if I'm going to have, you know, be able to pay my bills at the end of the month or the year. You know, I want to have some semblance of stability, but at the same time, if I'm not putting myself into the world where I'm uncomfortable and unsure and having my, you know, preconceptions of the world around me and the stories that I'm going into changed and realized in a new way that I'm not doing my job as a journalist, as a as a storyteller, as a reporter. Um, so I do think that's a necessary part of the job, no matter where you fall into the kind of organizational spectrum of things um, to get out there. I couldn't agree more with that. I think that that's, that's something we've touched on in the podcast a lot is like the value in making yourself uncomfortable yeah. in, a, in a professional sense, like pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and how necessary that is. Absolutely. Is there anything that you feel like the media isn't communicating enough about that you're witnessing on the ground in Ukraine? Hmm. Sure. You know, I'll be honest about this. Um, not everybody might, might like this or not, but you know, it is interesting, I think to see, and I'm, I'm obviously only talking in, in generalities here. Um, but I think especially in, you know, in American and Western media, we do fall into these, real kind of black and white tropes in our stories. And it's, it's very easy to kind of, in this case, and I'm not, I'm not even questioning the validity of this narrative or any narrative, but I, I do think you can, you can observe a kind of prevailing narrative where one side is, you know, the good side, the good guys and versus, you know, this, this evil other. Um, and I'm, I'm always skeptical of that. You know, I'm always, whenever I see that, I really try to train myself to to not fall into those kind of tropes. And I, I realize that, especially in certain situations when there is a, a clear military aggressor or instigator, um, that that is something that we document in our journalism and we stick to the facts and we show um, what nations and their leaders have, have wrought on civilians, literally millions of civilians uh, here on the ground. Um, 
But sometimes I think you can just see where the stories almost can get a little too black and white. And war is an ugly thing, you know, and it, even, you know, the best intention of people I've seen, you know, resort to some pretty brutal stuff, you know, and I've I've done stories where, you know, we see Ukrainians, <clears throat> you know, for instance, speaking, you know, in jest, you know, joking about how much they just want to kill Russians, you know, and I think in a circumstance like this, you know, a lot of people would, you know, forgive that, understand that, you know, and um, people even kind of go along with that. But at the same time, you know, joking about murdering anybody in any circumstance is a, is a pretty horrific place to have arrived in humanity, you know, um, and <clears throat> those are the kind of places that I hope we're, you know, scrutinizing more and we're, we're shining a, you know, a skeptical lens and not just, you know, t completely valorizing one side and completely condemning another. Um, I think there are, when, when we document war crimes, when we document indiscriminate attacks on civilians, of course, of course, of course, that is the backbone of this job to document for the world, those kind of crimes. And, you know, for those who are tasked with holding people accountable for them, they will be able to rely on the documentation that, you know, we as journalists are recording in real time in order to do that and hopefully build a more just world in the future, right? Um, at least that's the goal. But um, whenever I hear these stories as if one side, you know, I get... I'm sorry, I don't want this to be taken out of context because I'm not implying that, you know, innocent civilians who have been bombed and driven from their home have any kind of complicity in this. Um, but there, you know, but there are areas where, you know, there are different types of people that are, you know, are engaging in the brutal, ugly enterprise of war. Um, and heart-wrenching ways on all sides and I think the more we can kind of ha summon the courage to see the brutality of this war in all its dimensions I know that's hard and doesn't always fit into the neat kind of western narratives that we're more comfortable with but the more we can kind of brace ourselves to do that the more we can really understand this war and every war for what it is and the humans involved in it for what we are, which is imperfect and a work in progress to say the least. And I imagine it's hard to communicate the like complexities and nuances of that, of what you're seeing on the ground there every day, you know, in a short video, it's, it seems almost impossible to be able it, to do that. It is impossible, man. I mean, I always, you know, I always kind of with my other, you know, filmmaker, journalist colleagues, I always kind of say if I can, if I can effectively document and communicate 5% of the experience I've had in a given assignment and, you know, the way the characters I meet, you know, the people that welcome me into their lives, if I can give you 5% of what they gave to me, I have excelled at my job. You know, I come back from every single story saying, you know, even when I'm, 
you know, really proud of, of a, a piece we did. I'm still coming back from that saying, you know, man, but this person also, you know, they showed me this and they told me this other thing and I can't stop thinking about this picture they showed me and the way that they, you know, looked at their daughter and, you know, it just, there's so many nuances and intricacies of, of human lives and interactions that just like will never fit neatly into a five minute video package, let alone, a, you know, you know, anything. Um, so I really, I strive to just, if I can give you a little taste of that, just enough to kind of, you know, connect with that person's humanity through, or that, or multiple people, but connect with that, that circumstance, that story, that dilemma in all its dimensions, even for just a split second, you know, while you're sitting there scrolling through your phone in the park in you know, Washington Square Park or wherever, you know, then we've, then we've done our job. You know, there's always more to do, um, but I do think that's, you know, video storytelling is effective in building compassion across borders in a way that I don't think any other medium is. And at least it, at least when we use it for its, the greatest of its strengths. And um, I'm really always thrilled to be able to, you know, experiment and play and work in that space. Is there anything that people listening can do to support journalists on the ground there, Ukrainian journalists or American journalists or, or really anyone? I mean, I know this is the time where my bosses would want me to say to subscribe to the Washington Post, um, <laughs> but beyond, way beyond the Washington Post, I mean, I would absolutely seek out and support in any way possible local news out outlets um, that are doing quality journalism that is trustworthy, that is, you know, verified and supported by other trusted sources on the ground. Um, you can find them on social media, you can find them in news outlets, you can look at, you know, even your like kind of mainstream American sources are, are usually, you know, if, if, if you read into them enough, you see the local sources they're talking to and referencing other local outlets, you know, and it's often the, um, the local resources and organizations that are overlooked in terms of, you know, global support and, and funding, um, but are doing the lion's share of, of the real work on the ground, even if you don't notice it, right? Because all these American organizations are still, you know, when a bomb goes off, you know, when something explodes in Kyiv, every American organization is relying first on you know ukrainian language social media to say what the heck happened where did it happen where can i go what's going on and they sure they filter it through their own lens but they would be they would be remarkably hindered from doing their job i mean their job would be rendered impossible if it wasn't for the the local reporting with deep deep knowledge of this community and this space um that enables all the subsequent reporting on top of that and if we're not you know supporting that level of local journalism the whole um the whole system breaks down so well on that note i think we can wrap up but thank you so much for taking the time to to talk and um i hope you stay safe 
We're all watching your Instagram stories and posts very closely. And uh, thank you so much, John, for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jenny. It means a lot, really. Thank you. Rough Cut is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler, and Sky Dylan Robbins. And our original music is by Zach Wright. And the podcast is part of the Video Consortium, which is a global creative network and community that unites today's nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. You can visit videoconsortium.com and we'd love for you to join our film family. And we love hearing from listeners. So if you'd like to send us a note, you can find us on Instagram at at roughcutpodcast, or you can send us an email podcast at videoconsortium.com. And don't forget to rate us and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Thank you and see you soon.